Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, good to see you all this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to that passage we just read, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Uh, while you're getting there, uh, I want you to imagine with me a not-so-hypothetical situation. You're building a friendship with someone in your life. could be a coworker, a neighbor, a classmate, someone like that. And, and as you're getting to know them, things are going relatively well in this friendship. That is, until they find out that you are, in fact, a Christian. And all of a sudden... The, the relationship just changes a little bit. And, and not for the better, they become a little bit more standoffish towards you. They become a little bit colder, maybe even over time a, a little aggressive towards you as a result of knowing this. Uh, maybe that's because they aren't a Christian and they're a little bit suspicious of Christians because of past experiences. Or maybe the relationship changes because they are also a Christian, but they are suspicious that you are not the same kind of Christian as they are. But one way or another, the relationship just changes a little bit. And, and over time, this person starts asking you questions that are at least loosely related to the idea of you being a Christian. Questions like what Christians believe about X or Y. Questions about why Christians do or don't do certain things. Questions about what you think about something that happens somewhere in the world on the news. They, they ask you questions like that. And, and the more questions that they ask you, the more you get the distinct impression that these aren't really questions at all. They're tests. They're evaluating you now. They're not asking because they're genuinely curious about your answer or want to learn from you. They, they are asking because you are now on the hot seat in their mind. They are trying to determine just how quickly they want to dissolve this new friendship with you. Has anybody ever been in that type of scenario? Or, or even if you have it, can you imagine it happening to you? Okay. If you can imagine that situation, you are at least somewhat primed and ready for the passage that we're about to read this morning and for the questions that get asked towards Jesus in the passage. Today, we are going to at least attempt to cover 32 verses of Matthew chapter 22. I didn't have David read all 32 verses because that felt cruel to him. But we're gonna cover 32 verses this morning. We're gonna cover verses 15 all the way through 46. Now, part of the reason I say we're gonna attempt that is because some of you have been around our church for a while and you know that sometimes it's a challenge for me to cover two verses in this amount of time. So uh, you are appropriately skeptical of what I just said, but I'm feeling optimistic today. Uh, here's why I wanted to cover all of that ground in this chapter of Matthew all at once. In this passage that we're about to read, three different groups of people ask Jesus three different questions, and then at the end, Jesus turns and asks them a question. And on the surface, it may feel like these are all different interactions about very different 
topics, but there is actually one common dynamic going on in every single one of these interactions. Behind each interaction, there is a common posture in these groups of people towards Jesus. These questions, in other words, are, are not just questions, they're tests. They are attempts to nail down exactly who Jesus is and what he believes so that they can justify dismissing him after he has answered them. If you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew with us as we've been covering it, you will recall that at least a few of these groups that we're going to read about in this story had already decided in their minds to destroy Jesus, i.e. have him killed. And the rest of them had at least decided that they weren't going to listen to what he had to say. So having already decided to reject him, these groups are now at the stage where they are trying to justify their rejection of him. They now want to find reasons to believe that dismissing Jesus was actually the right decision for them to make. And that posture is underneath every single one of these interactions that they're about to have with Jesus. They're, it's underneath all of these questions that they are about to ask. And that is also where I think this passage has a lot to teach us today. Because a lot of people today also have questions about Jesus. Some of us in the room this morning have questions about Jesus. And sometimes they're just that. They're just honest, curious questions. But sometimes, too, those questions can be more than that. Sometimes our questions about Jesus or about faith or about church are actually conscious or unconscious attempts to reject Jesus and his authority over our lives. And then attempts for us to feel justified in our rejection of him, just like the groups of people in this story we're attempting to do. So here's the way I want to approach this passage this morning. It's a little bit different from how we normally do things. I'm going to teach this passage in sections. And in each section of the passage, I'm going to give you a name for that particular type of question that people often ask both then and today. I'll then show you where I got it from in the passage. And then we'll talk about how that question shows up in people's lives today and wrestle with it a little bit. Does that make sense? If not, I think it'll make sense as we go along. But first, let's talk about, in the first section of this passage, what I would call the political question. The political question. Here's how I would language the political question. Does Jesus affirm or challenge my political perspective? Does Jesus affirm or challenge my political perspective? This one will be fun. People love talking about this stuff in church. So uh, let's read the interaction. I'll show you where I'm getting it from. Start with me in verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Nothing like a little empty flattery towards the person you secretly hate, right? That's what's happening here. Second half of verse 16, you aren't swayed by others, Jesus, because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought to him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this? Whose image is on the coin? And whose inscription? Verse 21, Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. 
When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Okay, so the Pharisees and the Herodians were rival religious groups in Jesus' day. But they often functioned much more like rival political groups, at least by our standards today. They, they did not much like each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians did, because they had very distinctly different visions of the world, and particularly different visions of how the Jewish people should interact with the nation of Rome. The Pharisees thought that the Romans were worldly. So any amount of friendship or cooperation with Rome, in their minds, was a one-way road to worldly. The Herodians played very nice with Rome because they figured that meant more political power for them as a result. Their approach to Rome was essentially go along to get along. So functionally, there was a deep, substantial rift between these two groups of people in Jesus' day. But here, we're told that both groups approach Jesus with a question. The question is, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar, the Roman emperor, or not pay it. The Pharisees believed that you should not pay the tax because that was in essence to compromise with Rome. The Herodians had no problem paying this particular tax because it was practical and expedient for them to pay it. So this is a politically charged question that gets asked to Jesus by these two groups. It it would be sort of like a group of conservatives and a group of progressives coming up to you today and asking you, what are your thoughts on gun control, and then watching you sweat it out. That's essentially the situation. They essentially want to know what camp Jesus is in. And whatever camp he's in, the other camp will feel entirely justified in writing him off as a result of his answer. So how does Jesus answer the question? Well, he answers with an object lesson of sorts. He asks for someone to show him the coin used for paying the tax. He asks what picture is on the coin, whose image is on it, to which the answer is Caesar. They had emperors on their coins, much like we have presidents on ours. Okay, he says, if if Caesar's image is on the coin, well, then you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, which is a direct challenge to the Pharisees who believe you shouldn't pay the tax. And if you stop there, it might seem like Jesus sides with the Herodians on this particular issue. But you got to keep reading. He follows that up with, and give to God what is God's. So let's see if we can follow Jesus' logic here. The coin had Caesar's image on it. What has God's image on it? Specifically, who has Jesus, has God's image on it? Us, right? Human beings have God's image on them. So Jesus is saying... Give Caesar's money to him if he asks for the money, he can have it. But give God what he asked for, namely, your entire self, your life and everything in it. Here's why this was significant for Jesus to say this in this setting. The Herodians were notorious for not just going along with the Romans, but actually living like the Romans, They partied like the Romans. They were driven by greed and brutality like the Romans were. They even engaged in sexual sin like the Romans did. So while it may seem at first like he's siding with the Herodians on whether or not to pay the tax, he's actually taking aim at them directly as well. He's saying there is a better question you should be asking than what should I do with my money? And it's the question, what should I do with my life? He's telling the Herodians that just because they give their money to the Romans, that doesn't mean they should adopt the Roman way of life. 
So in all likelihood, with his answer, Jesus probably left both groups in front of him feeling a little bit affirmed and a lot of bit frustrated. They both came to Jesus wanting him to validate their political perspective or wanting him to oppose their political perspective so that they could feel justified in their opposition to Jesus. And instead, Jesus just challenged and confronted them both. Okay, I don't think I need to prove this to anybody living in 21st century America. But political allegiances can run deep in people's hearts and minds. That's a shocking amount of cultural analysis, I know. It means I've watched the news for 30 minutes in my life, right? (laughs) But they run deep in people's hearts and minds, especially modern day, right? And often what that means is we will come to Jesus expecting him to validate and affirm our political perspectives rather than expecting him to challenge them. And if you don't believe me on that, just go to Google once you leave today and type in the words, a biblical defense of blank, and insert in whatever political topic you want to put in there. Gun rights, gun control, pro-life, pro-choice, immigration, anti-immigration. Put in any popular political topic, and I can just about guarantee you that you can find someone on the internet ready to tell you that Jesus already agrees with whatever you think on those issues. And to be honest, there probably is more merit to some of those arguments than the others, which is a conversation for us to have a different day. But my point is that when we approach Jesus in that way, with that posture, we are doing precisely what the Pharisees and the Herodians did in this story. We are coming to Jesus with our minds already made up about something and expecting him to agree with us on whatever issues we are passionate about already or bare minimum, expecting that he not challenge what we believe about those issues. I am personally so caught off guard at how often I will hear Christians today describe other Christians and or churches as too conservative or too liberal, politically speaking. What's even more concerning to me is how much more I hear those critiques than words like biblical or unbiblical. I think that is a testament to how thoroughly we have been discipled by politics in our country to the point that we are now evaluating our faith and other people's faith through the lenses of politics rather than politics through the lenses of our faith. But if Jesus' response in this passage is any indication at all, When we approach Jesus expecting him to affirm our political perspective, he is at least likely to affirm some aspects of it and directly directly challenge other things. Jesus does not fall neatly within Republican or Democrat lines, just like he didn't fall neatly within Pharisee or Herodian lines back in the day. Jesus has his own kingdom, which means he is not bound by loyalty to anyone else's. And here's why that's important for us to know. If Jesus has to fit within our political framework in order for us to obey him and listen to him and accept him, that actually reveals that our loyalty is to an earthly kingdom and not to God's. 
When you are truly following Jesus in every arena of your life, he is going to lead you to think some things that Republicans won't like and some things that Democrats don't like and some other things that none of them like. Welcome to the strange, wonderful world of following Jesus, right? That's what it means to be an exile. That's the language the Bible uses. And that was just the first section of this passage. Y'all ready to keep going? All right. Somebody said no. That was awesome. (laughs) All right. Second interaction that Jesus has, we might call the absurdity question. The absurdity question. Here's how I would language this one. Will Jesus require me to believe anything fanciful or superstitious? That's the absurdity question. Take a look with me, starting in verse 23 of our passage. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, that's very important, we're going to circle back to that. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, that is Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us, that is in the Old Testament law, that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, obviously a lot in there. Let's see if we can dissect it a little and show you what's at the heart of that interaction that Jesus just had with the Sadducees. So they reference an Old Testament command found in the book of Deuteronomy. And in that passage, if a man died and left behind a wife with no kids, his brother was required to marry the widow. Now, I'm fully aware of how terribly uncomfortable that practice makes us today to hear about. You'll be happy to know that is no longer binding on follower of Jesus. No need to make things awkward between you and your brother or sister-in-law, okay? Uh, Back in the day, though, it was actually a really beautiful practice that had been put into place for the protection and provision of women to make sure they were safe and taken care of. But really, that's not even the point of this passage. The point is that the Sadducees are asking Jesus about a practical implication of the resurrection. Now, think back to the passage a second ago. Do they believe in the resurrection? Nope, they don't believe in it. They thought the concept was a little bit silly. The Sadducees did. The idea of dead people coming back to life or life after death or angels and demons, the spiritual realm, anything along those lines was rejected by the Pharisees. They didn't believe in any of it. All of that felt a little bit absurd, a little bit superstitious to them. So question, why would the Sadducees be asking Jesus about a very specific implication of a doctrine they do not hold to? because it's not a genuine question. It's a subtle way of them mocking the idea of the resurrection. They're essentially saying, come on, Jesus. Don't 
don't you see how silly of a situation this idea of the resurrection would create if it were in fact true? Surely you don't believe in something as ridiculous as this. Now, all of that is pretty similar to a posture that a lot of people hold today. The posture as I see it come up is something like, I would be interested in following Jesus, but a lot of this stuff just feels very superstitious to me. I just don't buy the stuff about miracles and the Holy Spirit, about heaven and hell and the afterlife, the spiritual realm. All of that just feels a bit out there to me, if I'm honest. That's how many people feel about following Jesus, about the whole belief system. Other people will do a different version of this where they simply create a version of God that doesn't require them to believe in those sorts of things. So Thomas Jefferson, back in the day, famously cut out of his Bible physically every mention of miracles, the supernatural, and any claims that Jesus made to be divine. He just cut them right out of his Bible. Those parts of the faith were just not necessary in his mind. But I also think we do this functionally anytime we shy away from the more difficult portions of Scripture. Anytime we shy away from a belief in the supernatural or the miraculous or the prophetic, anytime we downplay the more exclusive, more transcendent claims in the scriptures, what we are doing in those moments is actually strikingly similar to what the Sadducees did, objecting to things that the scriptures teach simply because they feel absurd to us to believe. So what would Jesus say to us in response to that sort of objection? that sort of question. Honestly, I think he would say something very similar to what he said to the Sadducees in this passage. He tells them that they must not understand the scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures, because the scriptures themselves teach this idea, or at least allude to it in the Old Testament, and the power of God, because if they don't believe God is capable of something like the resurrection, well, there's going to be a lot of other things that God does that they're going to find difficult to believe as well. And I think Jesus would actually say the same thing to us today. He would tell us that if we wrestle with those things, we need to keep learning and keep discovering more about the scriptures and about God himself. And then we might be inclined to consider these things differently. The third interaction that Jesus has demonstrates something that we might call the theological question. Theological question. Here's how I would describe this one. Is Jesus as passionate about certain theological topics as I am? Is Jesus as passionate about certain theological topics as I am? Now, this one might sound a little bit weird at first for that to be a way, for theology to be a way that people resist Jesus. But if there's one thing you can learn from the Pharisees when you work through the Gospels in the New Testament, is that you can even use theology as a means to reject and dismiss Jesus. They prove that over and over again. They're going to be proving it for the rest of the storyline in the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, look at how they do it in this passage, beginning in verse 34 of chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. In other words, they want in on the action again. Verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So there was a bit of a theological game that the Pharisees liked to play in Jesus' day. They would sit around with each other, often for hours, and debate among themselves what the weightiest or the greatest commandment was in the Old Testament. They would argue for way too long about which command God must have cared most about his people obeying. And they had mostly narrowed it down to two options. They thought it was either the command to love God or the command to love your neighbor. One of those two commands, it was thought, was probably the most important command to obey. So here, they want Jesus to weigh in on the debate. Jesus, what command in the Old Testament is God most passionate about? That's their question. Jesus' answer, I think, is absolutely genius. He tells them that, quote, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says... The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's not abundantly obvious here in the NIV version of the Bible, but that word like, when he says the second is like it, is the Greek word homoios. It means something is the same as or of equal rank to something else. So the conversation would have sounded something like this. Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus says, The most important commandment is love God. And the second most important commandment is of equal importance to the first one, love your neighbor. So wait, Jesus, which which one is more important though? Jesus would say, yes. (laughs) This is how he answers their question. Do you see why Jesus' teaching frustrated a lot of people that liked really locked in answers? And then, as if that answer was not confusing enough, Jesus tags this line on to the end, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as it turns out, all of the commandments actually matter because they are all just direct outworkings of these two commandments that Jesus just said are most important. Jesus has provided an extremely unsatisfying answer to these two camps debates. But once again, It's important that you realize he is doing that, at least in part, because he correctly discerns the insincerity of their question. If this group of people had been honestly wanting to learn from what Jesus had to say, chances are his answer to them would have been very different than it was. But as it stands, Jesus is simply not going to pick a team in their pointless theological debate. To that, Jesus politely says, no thank you. I'm not interested in that conversation. As Eric actually mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus simply is not interested in having theoretical conversations with the Pharisees about theology, all while they are neglecting to hear him out on the very practical, personal things he has been engaging them on. That's just not how Jesus rolls. Jesus doesn't get entangled in conversations like this when there are real things to be talked about. So I'll just say it this way and let this fall where it needs to fall in our midst. Some of us in the room are very, very passionate about a particular theological topic or a particular theological debate. 
Like we're very passionate about it to the point that when someone brings it up in conversation or something loosely related to it in a conversation, it's like we almost get giddy a little bit about the conversation. And to be clear, there are theological debates and issues that are worth being passionate about, to be sure. But I just need to ask, are we just as passionate about dealing with areas in our lives that are currently inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus? If we are, then great. Let's keep being passionate about all of those things. But if not, I would recommend that we shift some of that passion over to an area where it is a bit more urgently needed and making sure that we are not using the theology or theological debates as a distraction for avoiding the very real things that Jesus is attempting to engage us on. Jesus cares about theology too. He cares deeply about theology. He just also cares about our hearts. And in the final interaction of this passage, I think Jesus is about to show us just how much he cares about theology and he cares about people's hearts. Pick it back up with me in verse 41 of our passage. While the Pharisees were still gathered together, Jesus asked them, verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Okay, Jesus says, while we're on the topic of theology, I've got a theology question for you guys. Whose son is the Messiah? The Messiah, if you're unfamiliar, was the long-awaited king and liberator of the Jewish people that was predicted throughout the Old Testament, who Jesus has now repeatedly claimed refers to himself. Jesus asked the Pharisees in this story whose son that Messiah is. Now, ancient people used the word son very loosely, kind of like how we would use a word like descendant. So your son was not just the person who was your direct offspring, but actually anyone who came after you in the family line. So Jesus is asking, whose descendant is the Messiah? Jesus asked them. Second half of verse 42, the son of David, they replied, they replied which is the correct answer. But Jesus now has a follow-up question, verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, quote from the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the title Lord was a term of respect used to refer to someone that you saw as your superior. So kind of like the English word sir, but with a lot more significance because of the honor-shame culture that Jesus was in. So a lot of Jewish people at the time would call their father Lord, but they would never call their son Lord. That wouldn't make any sense contextually. However, Jesus says in the Psalms, David calls the Messiah, who is his son, Lord. I know this is like calculus. This is like biblical calculus. This is what Jesus is saying here. Why, why does David call his son Lord? Verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus said it would make no sense for David to call a descendant of his the term Lord unless that descendant was actually more than a descendant. Unless the Messiah that David was talking about was even more than a Messiah. Unless the Messiah was also God himself. Verse 46, 
No one could say a word in reply. In other words, crickets. And I absolutely love this next part. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> so Jesus has just won a match of theological jujitsu, right? He has stumped everyone in the setting with his knowledge of the scriptures. But you need to understand this. His theological question that he asks here is so much more than just a theological question. He has just used theology as a means to put them right back in the same corner that he has had them in for the past several chapters. Everything he just said is just a Bible nerd way of asking them the question, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Are, are you going to acknowledge that I am the Messiah and the Son of God and interact with me as such? Or are you going to keep cooking up ways to reject me? That's what Jesus is asking them. See, at the end of the day, this is actually the question that matters most. For the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for the Herodians, for the teachers of the law, for the chief priests, and for you and I today. It's the question, who is Jesus? That is the question that actually matters most because it's the question that impacts all the other questions. All of those other questions are important. Listen, it is not wrong to ask what political team Jesus is on, especially if you are prepared for a very nuanced answer. It's not wrong to wrestle with the more supernatural claims of the scriptures and to have difficulty wrestling with them. That's not wrong at all. It's not wrong to care about theological ideas and even debate them as long as it's done for fruitful purposes. But listen, it is wrong to operate as if any of those questions are the most important question. It is wrong to give those questions more priority in your mind than the simple question, who is Jesus? Because to put it bluntly, if Jesus is God, what matters most is not what political side he's on and if it aligns with ours. What matters most is aligning your political preferences with his. If Jesus is God, what matters most isn't actually whether there is any such thing as the supernatural. What matters most is that you understand that he is capable of anything and everything he wants to do. And if Jesus is God, what matters most is not theological minutia or theological debates. It's whether or not your heart is aligned with his. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then all of those other questions are at best secondary. They matter, but they do not matter most. The question you need to answer first, the question that all of us need to answer first is the question, who do I believe Jesus is? Who do I believe he is? Is he who he claims to be? Because if so, I can trust him as he helps me answer and find answers to all the other questions. But if he's not who he claims to be, well, then there's no reason to even bother with the other questions in the first place. The first and most important question we must answer is who is Jesus? Who do I believe him to be? Not too long ago, there was a woman that started coming around our life group. And even though she would have claimed to be a Christian beforehand, the idea of actively following Jesus was a relatively new concept to her. 
And as she began realizing that about herself and and considering that, she had a lot of questions. And I mean a lot. She, She was hung up on things like the idea of hell and judgment and eternity. She was hung up on the idea that self proclaimed Christians could be responsible for so much evil in the world. She was hung up on the ideas of sexuality and gender identity, all of those things, and the Christian perspective on all of those things. And she had plenty more questions along those lines, just lots of questions about the movement of Jesus, about what it meant to follow Jesus. And as she came around and felt the freedom to ask those sorts of questions, people helped her work through those. They gave her books to read and podcasts to listen to and resources to help her dive into all of those questions and start seeking out answers to them. But at one point, as she tells the story, someone said to her over dinner something along these lines. They said, listen, I I love that you have questions. I love that you feel freedom to ask those questions. I want you to keep asking those questions. But the question you're going to have to decide first is who is Jesus? That is the most pressing question and that is going to help you navigate all the others. And I'm sure it wasn't just that conversation that did it, it was the whole process. But today, she calls herself a follower of Jesus. And it's not because she got perfectly satisfying answers to all of her questions. She would probably tell you that she's still working through a lot of them and even more that have come up since then. But she did decide on an answer to the most important question, which is who is Jesus? She decided that he is who he claims to be and therefore he can be trusted with all the other questions that there are. So again, as we close this morning, I am not saying don't have these types of conversations. I'm not saying you're not allowed to have these sorts of questions. I'm not saying don't have and ask and seek answers to these types of questions. I'm just saying don't operate as if they are what's most important. Answer the most important question first. And as you seek to answer that one, I'll just tell you, God has left you plenty of help along the way. The scriptures that tell his story from beginning to end. Followers of Jesus in this very room who are hungry to walk through all of that alongside you patiently. Churches where you can learn and connect with others who are on different places in the same journey that you are. And the spirit who is faithful to come alongside you and help you discover it all. He has left us tons of help. And if you're wondering where to start, I would say start here. Jesus did a lot more than just engage in debates with groups of people in his day. All of this was leading up to a moment in history where he would go to a cross and be crucified. The scriptures tell us that he did that because he wanted to, quote, seek and save that which was lost. Just for clarity, that's me and you. Outside of Jesus intervening, we we are lost. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Without Jesus, we are lost. And Jesus' death and resurrection is him doing something about all of that. That's how we know he can be trusted. Romans 8 talks about if we see the cross and we understand that Jesus can be trusted in that moment, well, then he he can be trusted at any moment there is, in any question that there is, in any hang up or objection that there is. 
We start with what happened at the cross. So every week, those of us that claim to know and follow Jesus in this room, we go to the tables all throughout this room and we partake in the bread and the cup where we can remember and reset on all of that. And if you're here this morning and you think that all of this might be for you, if you think you may have just decided on the most important question that Jesus actually is who he claims to be, well, then you're invited to head to the tables with us and enjoy that for the very first time. Or maybe you've got some conversations you need to have. You need to ask some more questions. You need to navigate some of that with people. You need to understand what that looks like. And that's totally fine too. We would love to have those conversations with you. But if you've decided this morning that Jesus actually is who he claims to be and that you want to believe that, and you want to let that be the guide through all the other questions, well, then you're invited to go to the tables with us. You're invited to respond and celebrate with all of us. Let me pray for us.